On Sunday mornings, we have been journeying through the Gospel of John together. We're in chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to John's Gospel, chapter 2 with me this morning as we continue there through our study. And if you do need a Bible, the guys have a couple copies in the aisle, so feel free to get their attention so you can see what God's Word says for yourself and follow along as we study it together this morning. Last week, we went down as far as verse 11 in chapter 2, so we will pick up there in chapter 2, verse 12, and we're going to make our way through the remainder of the chapter together. And if you would, if you'd stand together with me out of reverence for the Word of God as we do, as we read the Scripture this morning. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, After this, he, referring to Jesus, went to Capernaum, he, his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the money changers and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask that you would work in each and every one of us to be prepared to hear what the voice of your Holy Spirit would want to say to us through this portion of your word that you inspired and recorded for our benefit. Lord, as always, we don't want to hear wise or persuasive words of a man. We want to experience that demonstration of your spirit and power speaking directly and personally to our hearts. Lord, you know what it means to prepare each one of us, and we ask that you do that now, and that as always, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our instructor this morning. Speak to us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I think some people hear words like authority and anger, and when they hear those type of words, they automatically just sort of get a negative vibe. I think some people as well may, for example, hear someone say that maybe it's safe and wise to first verify somebody's sincerity before you trust them, and to some, that almost sounds somewhat skeptical and uncaring, yet I think the life of Jesus sheds a different light on some of those things particularly in the very passage in front of us this morning. I want you to consider, if you would, a few questions, and I'm not looking for an answer, so please don't feel led to that, but consider a thing or two in your mind as we go into this study this morning. Is there perhaps a time when authority 
should indeed actually be used in a healthy way to overrule something or maybe put an end to a situation where wrong things are happening and they need to stop. That's good use of authority. Is it perhaps possible, right and godly, to use sincere anger, godly anger, against certain things in life and even be justified to do something out of a response of that anger to right something going on that is actually wrong? Is it possible being aware of someone's underlying intention or maybe their underlying motivation to therefore perhaps think about that being important before how you decide that you relate to them? I think the answer to all those questions is yes. And I think Jesus himself, who is the perfect man, demonstrates that in our passage in front of us this morning. Remember the backdrop of where we're at at this point in John's gospel we saw last week. Jesus has just officially began his public ministry at this point. At this point in time, the three and a half year of the public ministry of Christ is about to begin. He's just performed his first miraculous sign at the wedding there in Cana that he was attendance at. And verse 12, if you draw your attention with me, tells us after this, that is that first miracle that happened at the wedding of Cana, Jesus went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So directly after the events of that wedding, Jesus now, it says, transitions, if you would, to a new location in Israel, which actually becomes somewhat the headquarters of Jesus during the time of his public ministry. We read here that Jesus himself, it says his mother Mary, as well as his other family members indicating, take notice, as the Bible often does, the perpetual virginity of Mary is not a true doctrine because Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters after he was born to the Virgin Mary. So some of his family members, as well as his disciples, they now move, it says, over to the area of Capernaum where they stay for a few days. And Capernaum is basically a shore community located in the area of the, the Sea of Galilee. And basically, that is where Jesus somewhat establishes kind of a base of operations for his messianic ministry over the next three years. It's where he would sort of go back to and sort of operate out of its seams. Well, verse 13 then goes on to say, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, verse 13 sort of sets the stage now for this interesting event that happens with Jesus. Uh, and it tells us what's going on there. Look at it, verse 13. It says it was the Passover of the Jews. Now, you might want to write in your notes or in your Bible here, Exodus chapter 12, because there you get detailed description of the Passover of the Jews. The Passover, remember, in summary, was that annual Jewish feast or celebration that God instituted for the Israelites to observe to commemorate his deliverance of them out of Egypt. And you remember the way God's deliverance took place. There they were in bondage and slavery. God hears the cry of his people for deliverance. He raises up a deliverer, Moses, sends him to them. And then with a series of plagues against the Egyptians, the last of those plagues was the plague of the firstborn, where the angel of death would go through the territory and put to death all the firstborn among the Egyptians. God, wanting his people as a means of being ready for that so that they did not suffer the wrath of God, instructed them to take a lamb, to put that lamb to death, and then to put the blood, remember, over the doorposts and the lentils of their houses, and to remain inside. And God promised wherever the angel of death saw the blood 
of an innocent lamb applied that that angel in his wrath would pass over from exercising the wrath of God in the household of all who were under that blood covering, if you would. Of course, a beautiful picture of Jesus. Well, the next day, God then led them out in that swift deliverance and across the Red Sea in deliberation of new life. And the celebration of the Passover reflected and remembered this great deliverance of God. And the Passover celebration was sort of an annual religious holiday that the Jews observed. And it was one of the major Jewish feasts or festivals. There was about seven in total. We've been looking at them as we studied on Wednesday nights through the Old Testament. But Passover was one of the major celebrations in the sense that the law of God said that any Jewish male who was 19 years old or over was required according to the law of God, to attend Jerusalem where the temple was for three of those feasts in Israel, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So this was one of the major feasts, and if you were 19 years or older as a Jewish male, you were required to be in attendance there. And it was during the Passover, the population of Jerusalem, I want you to envision in your mind, would just swell incredibly. And the whole city would come alive with life. Probably one way you could somewhat relate to that by way of illustration. Here we are in somewhat of a, a sure area. And we think of, you know, Ocean City and Atlantic City and some of these shore communities. And you know how in the summertime, a sure resort community, it just swells in its population. And everything kind of just comes to life. Well, that's what would happen in Jerusalem at Passover time. Hundreds of thousands of Jews would descend upon Jerusalem at that time. Pilgrim travelers came from all over to celebrate this Passover feast. They'd refrain from work for a week. And it tells us in verse 13, notice where Jesus goes. It says, Jesus, showing you he's obedient to the law of God, went up to Jerusalem. So he, keeping God's law, assembles there for this major holiday where hundreds of thousands of worshipers have now gathered to spend time with God and one another in this great high holy day as they celebrated Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread for a week afterwards. And then this big event begins to unfold as Jesus is in Jerusalem. Look at it with me in verse 14. It says, Jesus found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the money changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So this is a picture of Jesus that in first glance, it seems somewhat shocking, but quite honestly, it's rather enlightening. And I'll go so far to say for me, it's rather refreshing because it gives a fuller picture of God and a fuller picture of really what love is. Notice with me in verse 14 there what Jesus finds. It says in verse 14 that Jesus finds in the temple some things going on. Now, when it says he found in the temple, again, remember the temple there is a reference to the temple mount, the whole temple precincts. And again, the temple mount or the temple precincts, 
basically consisted of two things. There was the actual temple structure itself, the building of the temple, but then there were also multiple courtyards surrounding the temple area. The temple structure itself, remember, was where the priests would do their ministry both inside and directly outside the temple. It's where the uh, altar of sacrifice was, where they offered their sacrificial offerings. Inside the temple, there was, remember, the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the golden menorah, the lampstand, and then the veil. And behind that veil in the back room called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, was where the actual presence of God was manifest there inside the temple. But beyond the temple building itself, surrounding the temple structure were multiple courtyards that you would pass through before you would get to where the temple area itself was starting from the east you had first the temple or the court of the gentiles where they would gather to worship and pray and then you had as you went in further the the court of the women and then the court of the men and then ultimately what was called the court of the priests which was closest to the temple itself but all these things were referenced or regarded to in people's mind as the temple. So what we have happening here in verse 14, 15, and 16 is happening, no doubt, in one of the large courtyard areas. And look what's happening, verse 14. It says, Jesus found what? Those who were selling oxen, sheep, doves, and they were doing business there. Now, these animals are all appropriate, acceptable animals used in making sacrifices at the altar of sacrifice there unto the Lord. And knowing, keep in mind here, knowing that worshipers were coming from all over Israel to descend on Jerusalem for the Passover feast to appeal to human convenience of the flesh for these worshipers, there were those who very savagely thought to themselves, why not just set up shop with some sacrificial animals right here in the temple courtyard and have these type of animals available for people to get for worship and sacrifice. And in a sense, they're preying upon the inclination that people want to draw close to God. So why not make it easy and available for them to get their animals right here? They don't have to bring them from afar. They can just come with their money and we'll sell their sacrificial animals right here for them. Of course, the price was much, much higher than the normal rate of a typical animal would be. So here they are, in a sense, taking advantage of this opportunity and the worshiper who's moved in a moment, naively being pressured to pay for such, and, and no doubt, and again, forgive me if it's speculation, I'm sure there were probably even those perhaps who had little signs over their little market area that said something, perhaps something like pre-approved animals. Whereas you came maybe with your little sheep into the temple that day, if you were smart and you, as the husband of your family, you know, said, uh, honey, we're not buying one of them temple sheep. We're getting one out here. And you brought your sheep in that as soon as you got in and you began to move towards the temple area, there were those maybe with a free evaluation booth. Because remember, animals had to be what? Without spot and blemish. So no doubt they'd probably, hey, free evaluation and they'd evaluate your animal for you. Oh, boy, I'm mm, right here under little sheepy's left ear. I mean, you see that freckle there? Uh, uh, that's, uh, mm, it doesn't look like you're to worship God today. And they'd let their hearts sink. Oh, no, we, this is Passover. We've come from so many. I told you we shouldn't have bought that stupid sheep out there from Uncle Bob's barn, you know. And, why, 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 and, and all of a sudden their hearts would drop. And then you could picture, oh, no worries. 
we have right here, lo and behold, pre-approved, priest-inspected, without spot or blemish, animals, you can still worship God today. Now, of course, it's going to be $99.95 to get this one. But nonetheless, you can still worship God today. And people would be pressured and they would purchase the animal at this inflated price. It says in verse 14 as well that there were also those there who says were money changers doing business. Now, the law of God, remember as well, required that each Jewish person pay a half shekel for the temple tax. It was a required offering and basically helped maintain and upkeep the operation of the temple. And there was also a temple treasury area where if you wanted to make donations for the poor or if you wanted to make offerings to God, you could make contributions. Yet again, it had to be in Jewish currency in the temple shekel. It could not be foreign money. And in that day, there were many forms of foreign money that were in circulation, coinage from the Romans, as well as the Greeks and so forth, and different areas and different rulerships of of governments. But the problem was all those other forms of foreign currency had images upon them, images of Caesar and so forth. And so therefore, you couldn't use that money to make a contribution because it bore an image. And you shouldn't have an image on money. Most Jewish money never had any images on it. So there was a need to sort of, at times, exchange money. And lo and behold, again, how convenient. Right here in the temple precincts in the courtyard was an exchange booth so you could transact your money exchange and easily exchange to the proper currency to make your offering. And yet again, you can imagine the incredible high exchange rate to change that money there for you. If I could illustrate, again, basically it was like the whole ballpark mentality or the movie theater mentality. You know, once they get you in and then you want a Coke, well, you look, well, it's only $22 for a Coke. You know, and, and then, and Daddy, I want a Coke. I'm dying of thirst. Can I have a Coke, please? $22 for a Coke? Are you kidding me? But, and this is the idea here. Sadly, it's somewhat shameful. Normal things, inflated rates, and people were here seeking to worship God, and they're being ripped off financially. And Jesus sees all this going on, people coming to sincerely worship, being preyed on and manipulated for financial gain. Jesus sees innocent people who are being victimized, innocent people who are being mistreated and used in improper ways. And this place that's intended to be a holy location for peaceful meetings of prayer and times of seeking God and focusing God. And instead, it has been turned into really like a wild flea market where basically it's like a circus people are taking advantage of folks and it's like a country fair with all kinds of crooked vendors and remember jesus is god in the flesh the son of god and he's observing this going on in his father's house as this is taking place and it's like a business market more than a place of seeking god and look what jesus does verse 15 it says when jesus had made a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured the money changers, poured over, excuse me, the changers of money and overturned their tables. Now, let me just say, I love the way that reads. Look again, the, the beginning of verse 15, I have it underlined, in fact. It says, when Jesus made a whip of cords. 
I mean, I would have loved to have seen the video footage of this. I'm so envious of the disciples that they got to witness exactly what took place that day. At some point, Jesus gets to the temple with the disciples and he looks around and he's just observing what's going on and aware of everything that's happening. And did perhaps at some point just kind of this look come into Jesus's eye, you know, as he's watching all this going on. And then it says he actually began this process of making a whip. I, I mean, they look over at Jesus. Maybe there's this look coming inside. I, I wonder, is he even, you know, maybe start to whistle. You know, and he's, and, and he's sitting here and he's starting to make a whip. And they realize what he's doing. He's making a whip. I mean, I wonder if the disciples are perhaps even looking at him thinking, you think we should ask if he's okay? Jesus, are you okay? And, and he's making this whip right in front of their eyes before all this unfolds. And then after he's done making this whip, there's this clear display of his anger, of his righteous indignation, and literally with whip in hand that he just made, it says he goes through the temple, driving out all those who are there, the sheep, the oxen, all those who are selling them, pouring out the chargers and changers of money and overturning tables, and forcibly, he literally drives everybody out with this whip in his hand. And again, I want you to, to see the reality of this in your mind. You know, I, I don't see Jesus, meek and mild, going, oh, could you, could you please leave? I don't want to have to use this. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry, please. I don't see that. I don't see Jesus tiptoeing around and weaving with the money. To... Sorry. I don't see that. I see Jesus here in a clear demonstration of righteous indignation and, and, and angry as a man. And look, I want you to please see, as one man all by himself, and there were, there were temple guards that existed. They had their security staff in the temple precincts. Not one person stops him. Now, one person resists him. He goes through with the authority of God and he clears the whole temple and he puts an end to what is going on. And I love this picture of Jesus as God and man. And as I said before, Jesus is the picture of the perfect man, the sinless, perfect man in his humanity. And I point that out to your attention because oftentimes I think Jesus is sadly portrayed as being very effeminate, very weak and, and sort of an effeminate figure, easily intimidated. You could just push him around because he's so mild and timid, sort of almost indicating that, that holiness and wimpiness, they kind of go together. And yet I read the Bible and I look at what the scripture portrays of Jesus and I see quite the opposite. I see a very manly man here. I see someone who is the epitome of masculinity, who was God in the flesh, love and holiness personified, but was masculine to the supreme at the exact same time. As you see what he's doing in this very passage, Jesus was not a wimp or soft or an easily intimidated man. Jesus was courageous. Jesus was strong. Jesus stood up against what was wrong. He was angered by evil and, and when God was dishonored or people were hurt and harmed, he did something about it. It was bothersome to him. And the righteous indignation within him made him stand up for righteousness. And I look at this passage and I think that's a man that seems rather brave, rather bold, standing against what is wrong. And take notice Jesus' words even as he says there in verse 16, 
These are what he actually says. He said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So rather somewhat stern, I think firmly, Jesus says, stop doing this now. Stop. This needs to end and take this stuff and get it out of here. This is the end. And Jesus, with rather stern audacity as a man and as the son of God, Again, emphasizing the reality of his deity because notice he says, verse 16, my father's house. Don't make my father's house. What's he indicating? I'm the son of the father in heaven, indicating his deity again there. And his father's house had been intended for prayer and worship and had been turned into a house of merchandise where people were doing business, buying and selling things. And I look at this as well, and it shows me apparently Jesus feels rather strongly opposed to those who would turn his father's house of worship into a place of just doing business. And I think that applies whether it's perhaps running a church, like a business, or whether perhaps it's in some way maybe trying to make money off of folks by using religion or Christianity as as sort of the covering for that. Keep in perspective here as we look at this though, Jesus is not doing this in uncontrolled wrath. Don't look at this passage wrongly as if somehow this is Jesus out of control and uncontrolled wrath. I would say it's definite righteous anger. I would say he fearlessly confronted boldly and bravely those who were doing wrong and he stopped them from what they were doing in a strong manner. But again, Jesus was sinless, the Bible teaches. So there's no sin in this. He's not harming or hurting people. He's acting in a way that's stern and strong. But there's no sin in this. This is righteous anger being displayed in a direct and a very calculated way. In a way whereby he determined something needed to stop and in a proper use of his healthy authority in a controlled manner as God's son in the temple of God, he deals with this with the authority of God with him. And what a beautiful, let me say, balanced picture this gives us in the Bible of Jesus. This balanced picture where here's Jesus, a man who was full of compassion, a man who was sensitive and kind and loving with people, a man who the Bible shows would play with little children. And yet at the same time, this same man who also boldly stood up for what's right with courage and would not tolerate evil. And Jesus would not be intimidated by wrongdoing. He wouldn't let it just go unchecked. And I appreciate this picture of our Lord. Others may have, certainly, this had been going on for years. And others may have come to accept this was the norm, but it was not normal. It was wrong. And so because it was wrong, Jesus being righteous and loving decided to do something about it. I can't help but to think if somewhat in his mind he's thinking, if if no one else is going to do something to stop this, then I am. Because this dishonors my father. This is hurting people. This is not what God's will or plan is. And so Jesus here demonstrates this beautiful picture. And I am so thankful, quite frankly, that God allows us this picture to see Jesus angry. Because I think it's very helpful. The Bible does not teach that God does not get angry at times. The Bible just says that God is slow to anger. It doesn't say he doesn't get angry. It's just that he's slow to anger. And I think that's important because even as Christians sometimes, we can almost get this wrong idea that the emotion of anger itself is sinful. I'll hear people say, oh, I feel so bad, I I got angry. Oh, I said, I feel so rotten, I got angry. Listen, if you can look at some of the things that happen in this world and you don't get angry, something's wrong with you. 
There are some things that happen in this life, in a fallen world, in a sinful world, that the right response is anger. The sinful reaction will be passivity or to do nothing or to turn a blind eye to it. The Bible just says in Ephesians 4, be angry, but do not sin. The idea is we experience the God-given emotion of anger. We're created in the image and likeness of God. God gets angry. He's slow to anger, but God gets angry. The Bible says, be angry. There's a time when you should be angry, but your anger should not control you. You should constructively control your anger in a constructive way, not a destructive way. And never let your anger spin out of control and the emotion dominate you where you then begin to do sinful things. If you would, consider with me this as well before we move on. It's also interesting to take note here of what actually angers Jesus. Consider this here. What's angering Jesus? Jesus wasn't angered when he was mistreated. I find that insightful for us by way of a lesson. Because oftentimes, why do we usually have anger and get angry? Because of what happens to us. You mistreat me or you somehow do something that you know, causes me to be hurt or offended or, or maybe I don't get my way or I feel mistreated, so I get angry because of what happened to me. Jesus here is actually angry and his anger is stirred not by because of what happens to him, he's angry because of what's happening to someone else. That's what got Jesus angry. His anger was directed towards seeing innocent people being mistreated. And manipulated. His anger was aroused because the glory of God was being tarnished and represented on the earth, and he's angry because people are interfering with someone's relationship with God and keeping people from genuine worship. That's what angered Jesus. And I think that's a good reminder because those are things, quite frankly, I think it'd be good to try and avoid. <laughs> I don't want to harm innocent people. I don't want to ever be guilty of dishonoring the glory of God or interfering in some way with somebody having a healthy relationship with God because apparently that's what angers Jesus. So these are things that I want to avoid and these are things that help us see maybe a legitimate occasion when it is right for you and I to be angry as the Spirit of Christ within us may bring this same forth. And here Jesus cleanses this temple and it's a good reminder as well of what sometimes Jesus has to do in our lives. A little temple cleansing. <laughs> You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 and Ephesians chapter 2 that today the church body collectively believers as well as each individual Christian that we're now the temple of God where the Holy Spirit dwells. And so because of that, sometimes Jesus in a similar way needs to do a little house cleaning at times today as well, I think. Whether it be perhaps in a, a particular maybe ministry or church that's gotten unhealthy in its activity or how it operates. Look, the church is Jesus's. He's the head of it. And if he determines that a church needs a little house cleaning to make some adjustments, then he should have the prerogative and the authority to do that. And he will gladly do such if needed. And in the same way, I think more importantly for all of us here this morning, we should be open to this in our own personal lives, that sometimes Jesus needs to do a little house cleaning. In all of our lives, maybe you've experienced these. Oh, I remember a time in my past, <laughs> and Jesus did a little house cleaning. I remember an occasion in my life, maybe you can look back at a time when it was needed, when things weren't right with you and your relationship with the Lord. And maybe there were some things inside or some things that were a part of your life, whether it was something you were involved in or some sin or some relationship or just things that did not belong in your life 
that were interfering with your relationship with God, that were displeasing to the Lord and hindering you. And Jesus, mm, we're going to have to do a little house cleaning. And Jesus came in and he kind of cleaned house a little bit. Maybe there are some of you even here this morning that maybe this is going on currently. Maybe Jesus is kind of abruptly overturning some things in your life right now. You're going, what is going on? I feel like there are just all these things are being overturned. Well, maybe Jesus in his loving way, but yet at the same way in his authority is just cleaning house a little bit. And listen, that's okay. Be open to that. It's a good thing and it's for a good purpose. Maybe he's wanting to drive some things out that don't belong in your life and say, we need to take this away. We need to get this out of your life. It's not good. He will always seek to remove anything that interrupts our worship of God. Well, as the disciples witnessed this, verse 17, look what happens. The disciples, when they saw this, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So, they're watching Jesus' actions, this incredible event as he cleanses the temple that day, quite an uproar. And their minds remember this scripture, it says now, from Psalm 69, which was a messianic psalm. And Psalm 69 gave this quotation of the Messiah, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And it indicated that the Messiah would be very zealous for the glory of God and for the worship of God and anything that interfered with that. And as they watched Jesus say and do what he was, that scripture came into their mind. Now, I find that interesting. Here's this tense, very rather unusual circumstance. And it was their awareness of scripture that helped them process and understand what was actually going on. To me, I find that helpful. Because the better we know the word of God and the more familiar you are with the word of God, the more accurately you're going to understand the ways of God. Especially when Jesus is doing something, you're thinking, whoa, can this really be God? What's going on here? And the better you're familiar with the word of God, the more the Holy Spirit can bring it to your remembrance so that as your human reasoning can't sort of put into perspective what's going on, the scripture you know can be brought to mind. Oh, that's right, the Word of God says this about God and, and the Bible declares this and it helps you process what goes on in life in a way where why you can make better sense of it. So after this unsettling event, of course there's going to be some recourse to that, some response. Verse 18 says, when the Jews answered, they said to Jesus, what sign do you show us since you do these things? So they kind of challenge Jesus because of what he's just done, taking control of really the whole temple precincts, overturning things, chasing everybody out. And they want to know, wait a minute, wh where does your authority come from to do this? What sign can you give to us that you have divine credibility to do this in the temple of God here in Jerusalem? Well, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking, John tells us, of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So Jesus now answers them, but take notice as we look at this together, because of a lack of spiritual sensitivity, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. They don't quite see what he's saying and they don't quite grasp it. He offers them in verse 19 there, 
Quite honestly, the greatest sign of his divine authority is he's standing in the temple. He says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, of course, he wasn't referring to the physical temple. He's referring to the resurrection of his body, the temple of his body from the dead, which would happen three days after he was put to death. In fact, verse 21 there, the commentary in hindsight, John even tells us that he was speaking of the temple of his body. So he gives the greatest sign that he could possibly give to prove his divine authority, which is I'll allow you to put to death this temple of my body and then I'll use my divine authority to raise this temple back three days later in his resurrection. But as Jesus makes that statement, both the Jews generally who are questioning him and even his disciples we see here, they don't really grasp, they don't get what Jesus is saying to them. They don't understand what he's saying at that moment for different reasons. Verse 20 tells us the Jews' response. They say rather sarcastically, wait a minute, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? So hearing Jesus' statement, because they're spiritually dull and because they're angry, quite frankly, at Jesus at this point, they don't understand what he's saying. They're thinking physical, not spiritual. Now, as far as the actual temple structure itself at this time, historically, Herod began renovation on that present temple in 20 B.C., and he'd used some 18,000 working slaves and had already been at it for 46 years doing renovations on that temple. And it wouldn't still be finished until 64 AD. So as they hear Jesus say, just destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. And they're thinking of the physical temple. They're thinking, what in the, the audacity? Do you realize how we spent 46 years renovating this temple? And you're saying destroy it now and you're going to build the thing back in three days? And it just seems so absolutely ludicrous and they're upset because of what Jesus has already done and they don't know why he's done what he's done and they're not thrilled about what he's done. So because they're angry at Jesus and because they don't understand what Jesus has done and why he has done it, they don't truly hear and understand what Jesus is trying to say to them. And I want to point out to your attention this morning that oftentimes people misunderstand Jesus and don't get what he's saying for the same two reasons. Sometimes people don't understand and hear what Jesus is trying to say because their heart's spiritually dull and they're not in right relationship with God. And because they're not in a place where they're in right relationship with God, unfortunately, the result of that is they don't get what Jesus is trying to say to them sometimes. And he's trying to speak to them, but they're, if you would, somewhat hearing impaired. Because their heart is dull spiritually. And just like in this story, because they were angry with Jesus and they didn't like what he did, they didn't hear what he had to say. And I think the same is true today, that sometimes people don't like or understand what Jesus is doing. They don't like what Jesus maybe is doing in their own life. And because of that, maybe they're upset Jesus has disrupted their world or he's doing some house cleaning or maybe they're even a little angry about what the Lord's doing. So they shut their ears off to the Lord. And they don't hear what Jesus is trying to say. They don't want to hear what he's trying to show them. Notice also even his disciples, verse 22 shows us there, even his committed followers at times did not fully grasp and understand what Jesus said until a later time. Verse 22 says it wasn't until after his resurrection that they put all the pieces together and thought about the scripture and realized what he was talking about that very day when he made that statement. 
And sometimes, even as his disciples, we don't fully understand what the Lord is doing until a little further down the road sometimes. This happens to us as well. But I want you to notice, it was the combination of a few things. It was the combination of time, of considering and thinking through things, and the Word of God, the Scripture, that helped everything finally click for them and understand what the Lord was trying to say to come to a proper conclusion. And the same is true with you and I. Maybe this morning, you're a committed follower of Jesus, and you're saying, I don't understand what the Lord's trying to say to me right now. I don't quite see everything that he's doing right. It, just, it, it doesn't all completely make sense. Well, well, let me say, listen, that's okay. You wait on the Lord. You wait on the Lord. You trust him. You stay in his word and clarity will come in time. And his word is the best way to ultimately give to you the clarity of what he's saying. And it's okay if you don't see right now. Eventually, you'll begin to see. And there will come a point where you say, ah, now I see what the Lord was doing. Now I see, I see what he was saying there and, and all of a sudden the pieces begin to come together. That's called walking by faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. And we walk by faith. We trust in the Lord with all of our heart. We don't lean on our own understanding. We acknowledge him and he directs our paths. Well, look at that as we finish up here. Verse 23, it says, Now when it was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed, it says, in his name, when they saw the signs that Jesus did. So apparently there, during the feast of Passover in Jerusalem, Jesus' ministry continues and more miracles and signs kept happening while he was in Jerusalem. And as a result of that, the power of God was undeniable and the popularity of Jesus was growing. And as the popularity of Jesus was growing, from the surface view, what people could see outwardly, the crowds are growing and it appears that Jesus is gaining more and more followers. It says many believed that they saw the signs which he did. So it appears Jesus' popularity is growing and it seems that he's gaining more followers as more people are professing to believe in him. But look at verse 24 and 25. It says, but, important word, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify of a man for he knew what was in man. Now, this is very interesting. Though they express belief in Jesus, it's interesting that Jesus' awareness of their heart condition tells us kept him from committing himself to them. Jesus knew their heart condition, and because Jesus knew their heart condition, he saw that their belief in him was, quite frankly, just superficial. All it really was, Jesus knew, though others didn't perhaps, that this was not genuine belief and faith in him as the Son of God or the Lord to be over their lives. What it really was was an admiration and a fascination for the miraculous and seeing the signs that he did and wow, look at the power of God and, and, and it was an admiration and being fascinated with the signs and wonder show and really in a sense they were more interested in being spectators of the amazing show. They were more interested in sort of participating in this growing crowd of popularity of this seemingly exciting following of what everybody else is doing, following this Jesus guy, and then they actually were really, listen, submitting to the lordship of Jesus over their lives. And let me say this morning, it is one thing to believe 
that an undeniable miracle of God has happened when it's hard to deny it. But yet it is a completely, totally different thing to submit to and to follow Jesus Christ as the Lord over your life and to yield yourself to him. It says here, Jesus did not commit himself, that is, entrust himself, it says, verse 24, because he knew all men. I think it's fair to say this this morning. Jesus is not into false commitments. He's not into false commitments, and Jesus knows the difference. Jesus knows the difference. Remember, Jesus on one occasion said, sadly, there are going to be those in that day who are going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do all these Lord, Lord, profession, profession. Did we not works, works? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. In other words, I knew what was in your heart and there was no genuine commitment on the inside. And I knew that. And Jesus alone knows that. Listen, gang, Jesus is not a celebrity longing for just more attention and more crowds to follow to in some way get a few more casual followers. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. And he wants to be the Lord of all in our lives. Those who will embrace his lordship. Jesus is seeking for those who fully believe in who he is and who are committed to follow him. And it's those who believe in him in that way, as the Son of God, who have a genuine, sincere faith in him as the Lord of all, and therefore act upon that belief by letting him become the Lord over their life and following him in a committed way. That is who Jesus then commits himself to in a relational experience. And the reality is Jesus always knows the difference because he knows the hearts of all men. Look at verse 25 there again. It says, Jesus had no need that anyone should testify of a man for he knew what was in a man. And can I say this morning, today Jesus still knows what is in the heart of a man. He completely sees the reality inside the depths of the soul and the heart of every single person in all areas of life. Jesus is fully aware of my sincerity and my insincerity in all things. Jesus is fully aware of all of the reasons why you're doing what you're doing. Fully aware of the motive behind why we say what we say or why we don't say what we say. Jesus is fully aware of all of our intentions. He knows our innermost being. And I think it's really important to be constantly aware of that kind of awareness that Jesus has of us. Because that reminds me very humbly to realize I can't play games with the Lord. At least I ain't going to get away with it if I try. I can't play games with Jesus. I may play games with others. We may play games with others for all the silly reasons that we do, but Jesus always knows when others don't. And Jesus, because he knows what's in a man, he relates to us according to the truth of the inner depths of our heart. Hey, a wise thing so often in our lives to take the words of the psalmist, Psalm 139, and say, search me, O God, because I don't even know myself. Search me, O God, see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. If so, Lord, cleanse me and deal with me. Help me, Lord. Do the house cleaning that you need to that my heart would be in the right place. Let us remember the Bible reveals this full picture of Jesus 
which shows us certain things do anger Jesus in a righteous way. And I want to avoid those things. And I want to be angry about the same things that he gets angry about. It shows us that Jesus has full authority and he's not opposed to do house cleaning when needed. And Jesus is aware of everything going on inside of us and others. And he always relates according to that full awareness. Amen?